Welcome to the audio podcast of the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi-access worship both online and in our recently renovated sanctuary. During the summer months from July 4th weekend through Labor Day weekend, our worship will be live Sunday morning at 10 a.m. We are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Elder Patty Watwood. Um, I've been elder at this church for over a dozen years, maybe. I have given a sermon one other time to this congregation, but it was during uh, the pandemic, so it was on Zoom. So it's the first time I've actually sat and stood in this very high perch. But I like high places, so... I thought I'd try it out and see how it works. Thank you, Connor, for inviting me. Um, So I am an artist, a painter. I'm also a teacher. I teach drawing and painting. Um, And I also wrote a book. It's called The Path of Drawing, uh, Patricia Wadwood. Lessons for Everyday Creativity and Mindfulness. And I just wanted to point out the book for two reasons. For one thing, the spiritual nurture and faith and support of this community has been completely intrinsic to the creation of this book in terms of um, it's a book about finding your own voice and using mindfulness, um, which is basically the practice of noticing your thoughts and making decisions about your thoughts as you move through whatever it is you're doing. And this church has always been a really important source of strength, and so uh, I say thank you to all of my friends who have helped and encouraged me throughout this whole process. Um, The other reason I wanted to talk about the book is that it was, first of all, one of the hardest things I have ever done. And it was because it really made me, the process of writing it, really made me confront a lot of issues of um, self-criticism of, is it good enough? That then I had to do a lot of work, both before writing the book and in writing the book, that has kind of given me some of the information I'll be sharing with you this morning. I always like how people start with, uh, dear Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, my strength and my redeemer. So the topic of this is the self-critical voice. And I start with uh, the last part of that scripture I will open my mouth to speak in parables. Parables. I will proclaim what has been hidden from the foundation of the world. That's really enticing. What has been hidden from the foundation of the world? And you are about to find out. Like it's like really good clickbait. I, I want to know what is hidden in the foundation of the world. And then you go on to read the rest of the verse. And it's all about sowers and seeds and wheat and weeds and rocks and the mustard seed and I'm sorry but I'm having trouble finding the part about the hidden foundation of the world. 
I thought I read the whole thing. So I really want to know the hidden foundation of the world, but what I get is parables. What I get is stories. What I get is art. What I do not get is a clear definition of the hidden foundation of the world. I want a clear understanding. I want to know a thing, and then that settles it. We are hardwired for a thirst for understanding, for mastery. Then, when I understand it, I can put it into the category of things I know, and then I can move forward, progressing from grade to grade. The condition of being perplexed is uncomfortable. It's anxiety-producing. I might make a mistake. I might look stupid. It's annoying to be perplexed because, heck, I think I'm kind of a smart person and I really can't figure this out. When you really want to take a person down in a conversation or shut it down, you can throw out, you just don't get it. It really provokes a lot of insecurity and feelings of uh, worry about your identity and self-worth. So we feel a strong need to understand, to feel competent in our intelligence. But this scripture leads me, reads to me as an admonition to continue the labor of self-development. I'm thinking of two examples of the kind of ad admonition I need and have in mind. Do you know the acronym AFOG? It's uh, for another effing growth opportunity. So you've gotten yourself into a situation where you realize that, unfortunately, you must do the work of growing through this messy situation. Um, so this is about our own development, our need for self-development. We love to blame our parents and our families of origin for all the buttons that got installed, and we can tell you about where they got installed and how that worked. But I was parented at home by my mother for about 18 years, mother and father. But I'm 51, so that's more than 33 years of being in charge of my own self-development. Or to find friends, mentors, and advisors when I understand that I need them. Um, another thing that this admonition reminds me of is uh, a recent Ron DeSantis quip with his anti-trans and gay hate speech and laws. He says, we're not doing the pronoun Olympics. It's kind of a witty little nugget and these little hate speech, you know, gets proliferated and repeated. But wait a minute, let's unpack it. What does he mean, the pronoun Olympics? I guess he's saying, oh my God, it's just so complicated and annoying that I can't just use the ideology and language that I'm comfortable with and, ugh, I have to do the work to accustom accommodate 
another person's needs. And it's just, and I shouldn't be compelled to do it, and it's just so hard. The pronoun Olympics. I kind of think Ron maybe needs to, like, man up a little bit. So just, this is actually, I didn't write this down, but this is an aside. So I'm, this is close to my heart because I have two children who are non-binary. They both use they, them pronouns, and I am embarrassed to tell you how often I mess this up. My children have been using they, them, they, them pronouns. Bo, they are in France. Jonah, they are upstate. I mess up regularly. So I just want to say, I do understand it's difficult. But also, if you mess up, if you're trying to do this, just move on. Just, like, correct yourself, maybe a brief apology, and move on. Don't belabor, don't be like, oh my god, I'm really trying, but I'm so old in my brain. Like, I know, I understand. But then you're putting that on the other person to be like, oh no, it's okay, I understand. Just move on. So I think, I think actually we can think about Maybe we, maybe we are strong enough to do the pronoun Olympics. Um, back to Proverbs. So Proverbs is all about discernment and wisdom. I grew up in the Midwest, where laconic stoicism and shrewdness are considered car cardinal virtues. To be a fool is a damning character flaw, a person not worth taking pains with. A family quip is, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. It took me about 30 years to figure out that that's really actually a no-win situation in both sides. They still think you're a fool, a silent one or a speaking one. But shrewdness is a virtue amongst my people. A man ought to know the value of a cow or a gallon of milk. They'll say something like, that man is all hat, no cattle. Or, a fool and his money is soon parted. I called up my Uncle Dave. He lives in Indiana, and he's a wonderful source of these kinds of quips. And we were talking about things about foolishness. And he said, ah, oh, you know that one? That fella's as confused as a goat on AstroTurf. <laughs> so there's, there's lots of good lines, and it's... Intrins there's a need to, to discern, to, to do your homework. And a great deal of attentiveness is spent on which people are sharp, which people are dumb, which can be led astray. And one of the greatest indignities is to be made a fool of by someone who has tricked you or one-upped you. You've got to keep your guard up. You've got to look sharp. I'm also the youngest of seven children, so in a child set, there's also you gotta you gotta look sharp. But now, as an adult, oh, wait, over okay. So over time, as an adult, all this shrewdness it sort of metastasizes into a highly calibrated internal system of judgments and evaluations. This system is directed at others. But most often, it is directed at ourself. I do not want to make a mistake. I do not want to look like a fool. And now I work as an artist. And an artist and writer 
and I have come to see the downside of all of that internal evaluative system of judgment. We go to art school and frankly we are trained literally through a process of critique. You do a thing, they're like, oh, really, it's not very good, you made a bunch of mistakes, you do it again, oh this is terrible, you try. And then you put it in front of a bunch of people and then the whole group of people tells you the mistakes that you made, right? And so you train yourself through this process of discernment, of evaluating, of judging, of judging yourself and of judging other people, so that then, I suppose, when you're done with art school, you can go home and do all of your own internal judging and critiquing. Oh, this is terrible. Oh, I made a mistake. You're working. You're trying to write the song. You're trying to write the play, the opera, the book. You're evaluating. It seems kind of terrible. Is it good? Is it good enough? Is it enough? Am I enough? Does it matter? Relevance is like this really important thing. Does it matter? Does it matter? So the judging self-critical voice is intrinsic to the creative process too, but I think to the process of all of our lives. I think those of you who maybe don't um, live, work in creative fields, I'm sure can find many parallels. But one I have come to understand is those who judge, judge themselves most harshly of all. If you spend all that energy policing yourself and others, then I imagine you don't have a lot of extra energy for feedback, for compassion, for observing, for listening, for growth. There is one really um, useful book that I loved that really was helpful to me um, learning about this about myself. It's a book called Nonviolent Communication by an author named Marshall Rosenberg. And in fact, that's proliferated into workshops, often called NVC, short for Nonviolent Communication. He says, stop shooting yourself. Stop shooting yourself. Let me explain it with a couple quotes from him, from the book, Nonviolent Communication. I'd like change to be stimulated by a clear desire to enrich life for ourselves and for others, rather than by destructive energies such as shame or guilt. Shame is a form of self-hatred, and actions taken in relation to shame are not free and joyful acts. In our language, there is a word with enormous power to create shame and guilt. This violent word, which we commonly use to evaluate ourselves, is so deeply ingrained in our consciousness that many of us would have trouble imagining how to live without it. It is the word should, as in, I should have known better. I shouldn't have done that. 
Most of the time, when we use this word with ourselves, we resist learning because should implies that there is no choice. Human beings, when hearing any kind of demand, tend to resist it because it threatens our autonomy, our strong need for choice. We have this reaction to tyranny, even when it's internal tyranny in the form of a should. So this shoulding can be very um, freezing, can really lock you up in your search for creative growth, for growth, for creative flow, for trust in the path that God has for you. This shoulding perpetuates a cycle of self-judgment and inner demands. That whole good angel, bad angel on your shoulder. But what if you instead, like, oh, the should, and I don't want to, and I was bad, and I was good. Like, they are both you. Um, instead of shame, uh, Rosenberg talks about the emotion of regret, the feeling of mourning a situation or action, because we do all make mistakes, and you feel like, oh, I, I wish I had done differently. Um, and he says, regret helps us learn from what we have done without blaming or hating ourselves. And then we can move into self-forgiveness. There's another person, wise person, who just says, do or do not. There is no try. And what if you stop wasting all that energy on all the things you feel like you're supposed to do but don't really want to and kind of do a half-assed job and lean in to what you want to do. So in responding to the critical voice, um, there's some things that I'm trying to learn. One thing I'm trying to remember that I don't actually have to defend my ego, that I can trust that God knows me and I don't necessarily have to convince a different person of myself. If you notice, if I notice I am quick to defend my ego, I simply just begin by noticing it. And then I try to go deeper and ask myself, what unmet need is being revealed by my strong defensive reaction? Um, defensiveness, then, for me, I understand as a red flag that there's something that I need to work on. And this has been a painful edge of growth for me, um, learning that I really see in myself this sort of dis-ease, a strong like need to be right or to say, oh, no, like I didn't really make that mistake. It was because like you said or then that happened. And... But if you're seeing this behavior just also recognize that that person, probably the lion's share of criticism is toward themselves. They are so exhausted with an internal struggle of self-criticism that they just cannot take it from the outside as well. It confirms their worst fears and they must protect themselves. So 
I tried to learn to go a little deeper, what are my unmet needs? Underneath my defensiveness is a fear and a shame that I'm stupid, I look like a fool. Underneath that fear is that I will not be loved or accepted if I am a fool. Underneath that is that I am not lovable just as I am as a child of God. I am only lovable if I earn the love. But that is not the message of the gospel. There is a lot of ideas of merits and demerits and earning grace and like forgiveness of sins and doing good work. I I think that's um, a really tyrannical way of thinking. And I think that the message that I want to lean into about God is that who you are as a person, God's love, that other people's love for you is not something that you have to earn. And that even a fool is God's child and worthy of love. So then in Proverbs, there is this um, language of to study, do the Christian work for gaining instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity, to teach shrewdness to the simple, knowledge and prudence to the young. This line is important to me. Let the wise also hear and gain in learning, and the discerning acquire skill. And that, for me, is kind of the the part that spoke to me most in that scripture. There are a lot of very smart people in this church. I think of the many lawyers, like my good friend David Jones. Those people study nonstop. They are always doing their homework. And they are taking their already pretty impressive selves and laboring to learn and grow. We have to do the work of growing. When I am 80, there will be yet another computer interface that I'm going to have to put on my big girl pants and figure out how to do. We have to do the pronoun Olympics. Um, These scriptures today invite us to understand that the pursuit of excellence, of knowledge, is a Christian virtue. Our capitalist society is a meritocracy in which excellence can be monetized to gain status and money. But let us as Christians remember that the best goal of that excellence is to be able to serve and love. So we are left with parables. And that makes us wrestle with discernment, the need to study, consider, wait, pray, listen carefully, observe. Um, one, of things, one of the things I have come to understand teaching art and as an artist, it's shocking how unobservant people are. Um, I think the scripture lesson is calling us to view lifelong learning as a Christian discipline, and that Jesus is asking us to puzzle through the parables. The seeds, the rocks, the thorns, the mustard seed, 
the buried talent of silver, Jesus set an example of not setting the rules and commandments of stone. Instead, we have to do the continually new work of interpreting metaphors and reading signs and cues. Rule-based systems, thinking about commandments and stone tablets. In rule-based systems, we judge people's character based on the adherence to the rules. In reality, those relationships, um, sorry, in reality, relationships without rules, if you think about something more like an an anarchy system, are usually far from a madhouse in which everyone does whatever they want without regard to anyone else. Instead, if you look at such relationships, they tend to show very high levels of communication, negotiation, compassion, and understanding. That's a quote from authors Franklin Foe and Eve Rickert. So I want you to consider how society, how we as the church might move past a rule-based structure to one that is even more life-giving and empathic and sustaining. And can we live without the voice of judgment, of thinking about this is right, that is wrong, this is good, this is bad, my painting is good, my painting is bad, my writing is good, my writing is bad. I think wisdom can sound like, I don't know and I don't need to know. I think into that space of I don't know, there is a great deal of room for God and a great deal of room for the various truths that are needed by the many people of God because my truth and my answer is not going to be yours. So instead of shooting yourself, There's another scripture that I love. It says, do not tell lies and do not do what you hate. It's pretty short and sweet. It's easy to remember. And I think that the scripture, the lessons today, invite us to try to let go of our self-critical voice. And when we notice that rising up inside us, to try to focus on the child of God who does not need to earn love through good works, through right action, through good painting, through success on Broadway. You don't need to earn it. As a child of God, it is all there for you. And what I have also learned in letting go of that um, hard rock of judgment gives me also a great deal more freedom and joy and creativity. And so if I'm able to just lean into the joyfulness of creative work, then somehow it usually ends up that God was present in all of that as well. That's what I have to say. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you are fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. 
The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options, both in person and online, Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time during the summer, from July 4th weekend through Labor Day weekend. We are live in the sanctuary, as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.